0: Is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
1: I'm Charles Feldman on the menu for today's show, breaking news out of Russia. We were going to begin this show with the latest out of that country, the possibility of martial law being instituted there. But it turns out the reporter that we were going to talk to cannot join us because Russia just passed a new law that prevents her from reporting until she leaves the country, which she is apparently doing. So we begin now from Lviv, Ukraine, where journalist Phil it- uh, Itner is uh, with us. And uh, Phil, thanks again for joining the uh, program. Let's begin with with that. Uh, it, that's a pretty remarkable development that uh, Western journalists uh, are feeling the need to leave Moscow in the year 2022— out of fear of being prosecuted for reporting.
2: Yeah, Michael Charles, this is uh, almost surreal in going back to an over, almost kind of a Soviet Union style of governance. Uh, this law has been passed by the, uh, the Russian lower house parliament, the Duma. It has not actually been ratified uh, until President uh, Vladimir Putin signed it but everybody does indeed expect him to sign it tomorrow. Already, however, it having been passed in the lower house of uh, parliament, there are many who are proactively uh, avoiding doing anything in that law that would subject them to a potential 15 years in prison for simply calling this a war. Um, They have prohibited certain words uh, in the reporting, and that reporting must be cleared by the government, by uh, uh, a ministry in the, uh, in the government, and that certain words such as uh, invasion or attack or war cannot be used to describe what's happening in Ukraine. So, the BBC, one of the world's largest, most respected news gathering organizations, has already said that they are shutting down all operations. Within Russia, that is hugely significant. So it appears as though what is happening is Russia is very much concerned that they are losing the information war domestically. Most importantly, and they are trying to limit, uh, basically, free speech within Russia.
0: They're also creating their own misinformation too. We were talking, Charles, you and I yesterday with Natalia from from Kursan, and she was saying, you know, the people here are hearing. That um, the Russians are going to come and and have a video tomorrow where they announce that uh, this is now Russia Russia, and you live here. And I was watching, I I think it was CNN this morning, and they were saying, you know what they're doing is they're bringing in like fake, quote unquote, humanitarian aid trucks as Russians. And they're filming all of this and they're saying, we're here to help you Ukrainians because your government's been so bad. And so that's going to get packaged up that video of them, quote unquote, helping after they bombed out the city. And then that gets broadcast back to Russia.
2: Yeah, yeah, Charles, I mean, that, that's that's absolutely right. And then we also see other measures being taken. For example, shutting off Facebook and Twitter. Um, they are clearly, uh, the powers that be, including Vladimir Putin in Russia, clearly very much concerned that they are losing the information war. And they're very concerned that word is getting back to their citizens of just how savage the fighting is here in Ukraine, all along, they've been under the impression that, uh, the Ukrainians would welcome them with open arms and flowers. And of course, that's never happened since the, uh, since the Russians moved in and up their, uh, uh fighting within Ukraine. So, uh, this is, this is, a, another level, uh, which in its attempts to be strong is actually revealing a very strong weakness. A very big weakness, I should rather say. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Phil. You know,
1: let, let, me, let me interrupt because I'm curious about something. You you had mentioned about uh, concern that the Kremlin has, Putin has, perhaps, of losing the information war. Why does he care? Uh, it's not a democracy. Uh, if his people... Get the idea that it's an unjust war, to use a word that I guess you can't use in Russia anymore, that it's an unjust war. Uh, So what? Uh, They're not going to vote him out of office. They're not going to pull him out of the Kremlin or wherever he happens to be and hang him in the town square. What does he care
2: Well, I think he cares because there is commonality between the Ukrainian and the Russian people. You have to keep in mind these people speak the same language. Uh, For the Ukrainians, it might be their second language, but darn near everybody here speaks Russian. And if they're able to communicate directly to the Russian people and say, hey, you're attacking us, why are you attacking us? That message will get through. It's not like there's a language barrier. So clearly, the, the Russians and Vladimir Putin uh, are, are scared that, uh, say, your cousin who is a Ukrainian might uh, post something on social media saying, "Yesterday I saw Russian soldiers doing X, Y, or Z." Uh, I mean, there are these accusations coming from the Ukrainian government just tonight that there are, you know, reports of uh, widespread raping and, and pillaging of, of, of Ukraine and. You know, that that, if said, in it would be as if we had attacked Vancouver and a bunch of Canadians got on social media and said in perfect English, what are you doing? A lot of our people in, in America would say, yeah, what are we doing? And so they can't control the message. Uh, they can't stop the message um, uh, as well as perhaps, that could happen if there was a language or a cultural barrier. So, uh, you know, they're they're afraid that Russians, frankly, are going to see the truth, see and hear the truth. I'll give you one kind of uh, instance here. I know it's just one instance, but it's a, a, a colleague I have, a Russian colleague, who is outside of the country now receiving all the information that the rest of the world is getting. But when she calls back to her family... Back in uh, Russia's uh, third largest city of Yekaterinburg, her family was so incensed by this that they've now blocked her. her. Her own mother blocked her from calling her because she said, hey, I'm hearing this. And her mother back in Yekaterinburg said, no, no, you're wrong. You're being lied to. I don't want to hear it. It's the level of brainwashing that's been going on within Russia for decades. And so they're trying very much to control the message. And uh, they do have an awful a lot of willing members of an audience who are devoted to the cult of Putin.
0: Incredible in the uh, in the worst way. Uh, journalist
1: uh, Phil Idner there in Lviv of Ukraine. Phil, thanks. Right now, we've already seen more than one million people leave Ukraine because of the war. Tens of thousands of others have stayed in the country but have left their homes because of Russian attacks. Platon lives in. Kharkiv, near the Russian border, which has been hit hard by the Russians. He's now left, headed westbound. Platon, we understand your your dad and friend were under a a, a bomb, were, were being bombed or near some bombing while delivering humanitarian aid. Is that right?
3: Hi, Mike. Kharkov, yes, that's true. Are they OK? Yes, they are, but their car is damaged and I mean like they were not hit, but they give uh, the first aid to to the person who was closer and who, who was injured.
1: So tell us something about uh, Kharkiv, your your hometown, and why you left. What was happening at the point when you decided you needed to leave?
3: Okay, sure. I uh, will probably start from the beginning. Like I woke up on the twenty fourth of February at six a.m. Because I heard, like, real loud explosions, and I understand that what everybody was actually not expecting started to happen. it happened so that, like, two days before this, I watched some, some programs and read some materials, and I decided that, like, yes, it's true, it becomes really hot, and probably I should take some precautions in terms of, you know, packing my things. So, so I did that, and um, I was kind of ready to evacuate. So my father took me from the center of the city, as I have an apartment in the center of the city, and uh, took me to the suburb, uh, which is like still, still uh, in Kharkiv, uh, but a bit further from the center. And I spent there seven days. Well, of course, like first days, it is like a complete shock and you're paralyzed, and everything you can do is reading news and trying to figure out what is happening. A lot of friends of mine and uh, a lot of people actually change the places they're living, and it is really hard to keep track. You try to text everybody, uh, find out whether they're all right or not, and um, luckily all of my friends are. But some of them have already crossed the border. Some of them are in different cities, uh, trying to cooperate and uh, make some help be helpful. Because right now, every person in Ukraine is trying to be helpful in our collective effort in overcoming this horrible disaster.
0: So, what are some of the things that you're you're trying to do while you know, obviously, trying to stay safe? And now, I guess, what you're you're on the move again?
3: Yes. Uh, because, like, uh, w- w- when you are in Hark, if you hear explosions, like, all day long, there were no day when we did not go to the bombing shelter. And at first, it was just, like, artillery or something else. I do not know. You just hear a loud explosions. But then, like, on the day six or seven, they started to use airplanes and doing, like, attacks from the air. And that is, like, really horrifying because... You do not expect it. You just hear the explosion, and it is so hard that, I believe, like, even, even the building is shaken. Like, a lot of people have their windows damaged or broken completely. The center of Kharkiv is in a very bad state. I mean, that that, that is the city I love, and it is, it is destroyed in the center. And, I mean, there are no critical infrastructure of the army. It's just civilian buildings. Uh, and uh, I believe that is that is that is just insane,
1: Platon. What what do you want people in other countries to know about what is happening in in your country now?
3: Right, uh, I believe I have, I have some sentences about this. First of all, I wish to everybody never to experience this fear. Secondly, I thank to everybody for the support, to everybody who is going on the squares uh, and showing their support. It is really inspiring for us, but even more for the army, like for the people who are fighting for our freedom right now. And um, thirdly, uh, well, I, I believe radio is an entertainment, but still. Um, I, I, there is this case that actually Ukraine was a country with a huge nuclear weapons, and in nineteen ninety four Ukraine has said Budapest memorandum that says that we are voluntarily denuclearizing ourselves like we decline the use of nuclear weapon and, uh, and and just basically give it away uh, for the exchange of the guarantees of our safety and the sovereignty of our country. And also, like our territory. What do you think and those is it, three what, countries?
1: What, what do you think? Let me interrupt. What do you think the future holds in store for Ukraine? Say it again. What do you think the future holds for your country? What do you think is going to happen?
3: Look, I can truly really not predict this, as uh, I don't know. What I know right now is the situation is scary and people are dying. And uh, besides, for the economical sanctions, which is well, of course, we appreciate that a lot. But uh, we, we we are suffering right now. I I do believe in our army. I do believe in our armed forces, because uh, you you can see that even if Kharkiv, the the, the city that is closest to the border, they are just 40 kilometers. If during nine days one of the hugest armies of of the whole world cannot even conquer this, that probably means something. That probably means that this person is bluffing. And, uh, I mean, th- that army is not that strong. That's one. Number two is that um, I believe even if something will happen and some cities will be occupied, there will be really harsh guerrilla war. What I mean is that, like, rebellions will take place and all, all like, the whole nation, everybody will be fighting against this. And if you will dig deeper into the history of Ukraine, you will find out that there were a lot of attempts on our sovereignty and basically none of it happened and ended successfully for the aggressor.
0: And how does that feel to you thinking that or knowing that? And knowing how many people in your country are fighting for your country or even passing them, I imagine, on your way out of town, there's roadblocks set up and you see people who have volunteered or you see your military out there. And and what goes through your head?
3: Well, to be true, nobody could ever consolidate this nation as good as, as Mr. Putin did. Like what I see now is that like people are volunteering and doing so much efforts with no money at all. Uh, because, like, money is not the case. Here we are fighting for something more. We're fighting for the freedom. We're fighting for the democracy. And um, it is all about, like, keeping our identity um, and proving that we are strong together, if I can say so. But, again, like, I, will, I would like to come back to the point with the denuclearizing that, there were three countries basically that signed this document, along with Ukraine. It was United States of America, Russia, and Great Britain, and they all signed it and said that the territory will, 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 will this country will be sovereign. And it is shameful to see that not only Russia is trying to occupy our country, clearly violating this treaty, but also United States of America not nothing to protect those people. And. I mean, for everybody who is hearing me, I just encourage you to demand from your government to do something about this, because while the sanctions are taking part and uh, Russia is suffering economically, we still have like people hiding in the bunkers and suffering, and dozens of children already dead and hundreds of civilians.
1: What more would you want the U.S. and NATO to do, if it were up to you?
3: Well, well, I'm not a politician, definitely, but I see that our army is taking huge steps on the ground, and we are counterattacking now. I believe it at least, but I, 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 I see the, the progress, and I do truly believe in the success uh, in the end. But uh, we do have our weak point, which is the air. And right now, we cannot protect us from those bombings. Um, I mean, the the civilians. And um, that is probably the main case why so many people are migrating. For example, like, I took off and left my city and moved, like, 200 kilometers just because of that. Like, if not those bombings, I will live in a place and try to help.
0: Platoon, Thank you for talking to us. Um we hope that first you stay safe, safe as possible and, and that we can stay in touch, okay?
3: Thank you so much. And I wish peace to everybody.
0: Platoon there headed west uh out of uh Kharkiv left his hometown. He's, he's the city I love and and they bombed it out. Yeah, and, and now he's 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 on the move.
1: You know, and and as you know because we've talked about it, uh you know, he's not alone on the move. Uh a million plus people from ukraine have already left that country mostly women and children but not exclusively uh most of them uh you know uh, getting off the train or a bus or a car in uh, in poland and uh, when we come back uh, we will actually go back to poland and visit a little bit with uh, cbs news reporter steve futterman on what's happening there <laughs> You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russian
0: forces continue to advance in Ukraine. Comes as a top Russian diplomat says his country will not occupy that country.
1: With us now is uh, CBS News reporter Steve Futterman, who is in Poland near the Ukraine border. Steve, thanks for uh, being back with us. In our last segment, Mike and I were talking with a gentleman who has fled his home Uh, in Ukraine, is headed uh, westward, perhaps maybe to uh, roughly where you are. Um, And he was saying that if it were up to him, the U.S. and NATO countries would do more, that they're not doing enough, that sanctions are fine, but they're not doing enough. Uh, And yet he says this on a day when NATO has flatly, as it has steadfastly done, as you know, rejected the idea of a no-fly zone over Ukraine and he echoes what many others have told us since we've been talking to people in Ukraine. They don't seem to understand why the U.S., NATO are not imposing a no-fly zone. Maybe maybe if they're listening to you, you can explain.
4: Well, my understanding is it, it, a lot has to do with the idea that you don't want this escalating because if it does escalate, there's really only one direction it can go, and that would be a confrontation with uh between Russia and the US. If there's a no-fly zone, who's going to enforce it? And if it's enforced, does that lead to a confrontation? So that's been the general, I think, belief of why NATO does not want to have a uh, no-fly zone. In a perfect world, maybe they would be there, but they do not want this to escalate. It's bad enough as it is. and uh, But these are very difficult decisions that are being made. When you make a decision one way, it affects one group when you do it another way. It affects another group. And obviously, right now, this is affecting the country of Ukraine. And many people in Ukraine wish the U.S. and the NATO countries would impose this no-fly zone. All
0: right, because then they also say, look, if they're doing it to us, they being the Russians, uh, they're not going to stop just here. Putin has his eye on all these other countries. He's going to want that spear of influence thing back. So, And also, when, when the Russian diplomats say, we're not going to occupy, it's like, well, what is your game plan then? If you're trying to take over the whole country, because that looks like what you're trying to do right now.
4: Yeah, well, Ukraine, obviously, yes. I do feel that, uh, you could make a good argument that, uh, uh, Russia is going to likely install, if it goes the way it's going and Russia succeeds militarily, and that is to some degree a big if, but we know it's much larger than what the Ukrainian, uh, military has. But if, if Russia is able to, uh, do what it wants to it will install, one would think, a puppet government, someone who supports Russia's goals and, uh, Uh, It would not be a democratic government. And then the question is, would Putin go beyond that? And I think that's the big hope right now, that he will not go beyond that, because if he goes beyond that, it's going to change uh, very drastically, I think.
1: Do you get any sense since you've been in Poland that people there are are concerned that perhaps Putin is going to reach across the border into their country? I think
4: they think about it. I mean, listen, uh, Poland for so many years
1: during the era of
4: the Soviet Union wasn't occupied by the Soviet Union, but the Soviet influence and uh, uh, influence on its life in Poland was, was very significant. This country was pretty much under the hammer of the Soviet Union. What the Soviet Union wanted, the communist government here usually did. So I think they're concerned that it might happen again, but I don't sense any Imminent panic like it's about to happen or anything like that. I think they feel right now, whether it's uh, wise or not, they feel right now that uh, uh, they are going to be fine, I think, for the most part. For the most part, some of the older people who remember the days of the Soviet Union may disagree, but I think. Generally, the population in Poland feels right now that Putin's not going to attack them.
0: So the White House says uh, the big aid package is on its way or has reached uh, there. The EU says, uh, you know, we're going to actually supply weapons this go around. Do we know how much of that is actually making its way across the borders and into Ukraine where they can use it?
4: At this moment, I mean, I'm not aware of what, what degree of the, this aid is getting across right now, arms getting across. uh this is something that will take place. One would think, but it's it's a difficult process, and you have to do it very carefully. Uh, there are, there are parts of uh, obviously Ukraine right now that are controlled by Russia, and uh, it, it's going to be a very difficult thing. And you also don't want to put it, I think, in the face of Russia right now. You don't want it to be uh, a blatant. Uh, uh, Picture-taking transfer of of these, uh, of the aid and military aid if it's military aid. I think you want to do it very quietly and uh, and ju- just let it go from there.
1: Let's return briefly to what we were talking about with you yesterday, which are all these uh, people from from Hungary that are, are just yeah. you know coming into Poland in in waves. Uh, is there any stop to it? Does it come in intervals or is it a constant just just flow of humanity?
4: It's pretty much a constant flow, and I would call it more of a drip-drip. We're not having, like, thousands of people uh, at once coming across the border. It's just a constant flow, and that's going to continue for some time. One UN expert estimated there will be eventually 4 million refugees, and we've just uh, gone past 1 million already. That would mean four times as many people who come across will come across eventually. And at some point you would think it's going to strain Countries like Poland or Hungary or Romania. Uh, but until it does, I think the people are very willing to allow the people in. They're receiving them, as we've mentioned many times already, pretty much with open arms, uh, doing things that they can do to help them. At the train station today, there was a, a one sign that said, uh, free everything. And they're giving away free SIM cards for people so they can use their cell phones uh, from Ukraine. They're pretty much thinking of, of almost everything to help these refugees come across. doesn't mean it's easy for the refugees, even with this assistance, but it does make it easier.
0: CBS News reporter Steve Futterman there is uh, with us again from Poland uh, near the Ukrainian border. Steve, thank you.
1: A Russian attack on Europe's biggest nuclear power plant in Ukraine led to a big fire and a scare of a possible disaster similar to chernobyl
0: russian forces took over the plants firefighters uh, were able to get the fire out officials say no radioactive materials been released but this raises some uh, disturbing questions over attacks at nuclear power plants With us is David Woods, engineering professor at Ohio State University, specializes in accident investigations in areas such as nuclear power. David, thanks for being with us. So yeah, this raised alarm bells all across the world yesterday, I think for obvious reasons. We had the foreign minister of Ukraine saying, if this thing blows up, it's 10 times worse than Chernobyl. We had then uh, people in your field coming by and saying, okay, uh, it's not like a Hollywood explosion. This is built way different. But I think we can probably all agree, at least, bottom line, that shooting at towards near nuclear power stations is, is just an insane idea. Uh, it, is, uh, uh,
5: it is not something that we uh, focus on in our risk analyses. We assume that people understand this is not a good place for munitions to be going off.
0: Right. It by. shouldn't even be on the list of potentials. You know. yeah. uh,
5: but, but, well, that's right. That's why, remember, we do have, uh, first off, uh, I need to make one critical clarification The reactors in the Ukraine that were the focus yesterday and today are more similar to Western, what are called pressurized water reactors. These are ones I I used to work on and design control rooms for. And it has a variety of built-in ways that are uh, uh, safety-related in a variety of circumstances. For example, the... The containment, which would even if there was damage to the reactor, is built to contain that, to hold it all in, and will withstand uh, a a hit by a uh, airplane. So these are pretty solid structures. So they they have some resistance in this new uh, unprecedented situation. The second point is the, the design of the Chernobyl reactor is enormously different. Uh, Those were more Cold War designs where this is much more similar and has a safety record much closer to Western reactors.
1: Okay, so then let's talk in realistic terms of what could happen and what would be worst case scenarios realistically.
5: Okay, so um, first, the good news is we're over 24 hours in, and so the immediate crisis phase is over we, you know, the the current word is they did what's called an unplanned shutdown. And these are, the Ukrainians are very competent operators and runners of these plants. They have a lot of experience and a good track record. So their ability to do a a normal shutdown, but an unplanned shutdown, uh, that's a very, something they should be very, very good at. And apparently it's been shut down. The first worry was that the fires would damage other, Aspects of important equipment outside the reactor that could complicate this unplanned shutdown and make it more into an emergency shutdown. Again, an emergency shutdown means something's wrong and we need to quickly shut the plant down under conditions where some things are broken or not working as, as perfectly as we would like. We're past those scenarios. Now, the, so what do we worry about? Everybody's focused on the reactor. I wanna focus on something different where the danger is. That's on where we store radioactive waste. These are large plant sites with multiple nuclear power plants on them. Uh, only a, a portion were running and some were in reserve. Uh, and, but there's all this radioactive material and there is spent fuel storage in pools that require active cooling. That's where the, the hazards are. Most probably you know, if there's hazards of releases, it's because the shooting and the fires have damaged places where radioactive material is stored. So the first version of that is local contamination. So think of it like an industrial plant accident with a lot of contaminants that could be released in that area. And so the first hazard is literally the people in the immediate vicinity on the plant site and immediate vicinity. So soldiers nearby would then be at, at great risk of radioactive exposure under those conditions. Uh, the second risk is that uh, some of those stored waste and spent fuel, their byproducts, their contaminants, get into the river system. And then they start moving downriver. So that would be the first place where you would see radioactive material creating uh, uh, damage and hazard where the water of the rivers would transport that material. So... Um, I think the, the second thing um, uh, I've been saying to people interested in this is, given we're in the current phase, the good news is the uh, stored heat in the reactor, what's called decay heat, is declining, and it declines on you know, a pretty steep curve. And so the longer that goes on, the easier it is to make sure the reactor stays cool. So now we're in the phase of it's shut down. How do you keep it cool as this decay heat slowly goes away over days? And we need to make sure those systems keep running.
0: Do you worry about the workers? Because the reports we have is, you know, the Russians have taken the place over. And so now they're being forced to do their work at uh, gunpoint, basically. And uh, this is a pretty technical, you know, job that should be done the right way because it's a nuclear power plant. And this is not your normal working conditions, to say the least.
5: Uh, My comment to people has been. If uh, the the hazard, the main hazards that and we're going to come back to the spent fuel in a minute, but because that's where I think the active risk we want to be concerned about is and what watch for. Uh, But your question about the operators is as long as competent people are in charge. And the IAEA has said that there is a separation between who controls the site, the area and who controls the reactor. As long as competent people are in charge, things should be fine. Your point is because of the unusual situation, and that's why the nuclear international nuclear authorities are so worried. This is unprecedented and the pressure that puts and that creates uncertainty. But these are competent operators uh, and managers of this plant. And as long as they stay in charge, I don't think there's much to worry about.
0: All right. Point taken. We're going to have to leave it there uh, because of time. David Woods, uh, engineering professor, Ohio State University. Um, Thank you for for all the info on that um, fascinating and still scary. Just uh, maybe we should call these off limits, you know, although there's not a lot of things we're doing off limits from the Russian side when well, it comes well, to know, this, the, but uh, let's all to, agree. they're supposed yeah, to be off limits. That uh, we don't shoot at right. these place. So much for that.
1: Yeah. This is KNX In Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So the businesses were hoping to put the problems
0: of the pandemic behind them, but uh, they're once again seeing costs skyrocket, more issues, supply chain, as the
1: uh, war in Ukraine continues many companies stopping doing business with russia and some like victoria's secret and american eagle say the uncertainty caused by russia's invasion could last for many months
0: so what's next for america's businesses with us is alex Cherin, trade analyst and former senior executive with the port of long beach Uh, alex thanks for being here so yeah i mean that kind of says it right just when people think maybe it's going to get a little bit better this gets thrown into the mix
6: Exactly. Well, first of all, Mike and Charles, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to, um, to to talk about the potential disruptions of the supply chain. But before we get to that, just to put the discussion in context, I listened yesterday to in the interview you two did with the woman that was um, holed up in her apartment in Ukraine, you know, not knowing what was happening to her family and basically indicating that she lost hope. So, you know, any impacts that we're going to talk about today really pale in comparison to that in terms of the kind of real cost of human suffering going on uh, with respect to the war. But that said, um, on the business front, you know, there's really good news and bad news with respect to potential impact of the supply chain. So the good news in our backyard is that, you know, as Gene Soroka just mentioned in that last uh, bit uh, for our U S West coast sports, there's really going to be very little impact. Um, You know, about 90% of the trade that LA and Long Beach does, as well as Oakland, and to some extent, Wainimi is really dedicated to the Asia trade lane, so China, Japan, Korea, um, and those vessels that service that uh, trade lane are really dedicated just to the Trans-Pacific. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of impact from the Ukraine war there. The bad news um, is that we're still trying to make our way out of this, you know, congestion that we saw during the pandemic. So that you know, any little impact that we will see on the East Coast, which you know, you look at ports of New York, New Jersey, Savannah. Jacksonville, there will be some impact there because there are, you know, services and vessels that serve that European trade lane to the U.S. East Coast. And given that limit on capacity, you're bound to see at some point, potentially, some impact to vessel service that will exacerbate the existing congestion on our U.S. West Coast ports.
1: When there are disruptions, I'm curious, how much of that is because there really are disruptions? And uh, how much because perhaps there's an element of psychology going on that that people different businesses are afraid to ship things out or they're afraid that you know what's going to happen to their product and so maybe they hold back because they are waiting for some you know signal on the uh, on the world platform i mean is there any of that element into this
6: yeah there's there's some of that it's a you know the supply chain like any other industry you know tends to be Pretty competitive and you know there are external and internal forces that sort of influence prices and uh, timing of service and capacity and things like that. So there is a little bit of nervousness um, around the supply chain, and it's not so much the commodity that's being shipped; it's really the infrastructure that's shipping the commodity. So you know, in the current environment, we've got probably four or five you know, large shipping companies that service most of the world's trade. Um, and, you know, they decide on a daily basis, you know, how many ships do we deploy to the East Coast? How many ships do we deploy to Europe, to Asia, et cetera? And they, you know, read the headlines just like we do when they make those decisions. And so there is a little bit of nervousness on that. You know, you add to that, you know, the fact that, you know, I know more towards the end of last year, and the beginning of this year, we were talking about, you know the supply chain congestion is impacting LA Long Beach and you know at one point had over 100 vessels in anchor in San Pedro Bay you know just a reminder we still have you know nearly 50 vessels so it's gotten better but it's not back to where it was pre-pandemic so that's an added stress you've got the shipping lines you know looking at sort of their global capacity where to deploy it you know it's a lot like the airlines if there were a snowstorm in the US northeast you know, if I'm flying from L.A. to San Francisco, I may not see the immediate impact of that. But there's only a limited number of planes that can service the market. And when there's stress on those assets, it's bound to have a ripple effect and impact it at some point.
0: Alex cheren trade analyst, former senior exec with the ports of Long Beach. Alex, thanks.
1: If I say names like Joseph Stalin uh, or Adolf Hitler, uh, it conjures up all kinds of, of uh, images of just really pure evil what about vladimir putin talking about this with david marples professor
0: of russian and east european history university of alberta professor thank you for being with us uh so yeah is he based on what's going on now
7: on this list uh, now he's not there yet but he could very well be by the time this war is over i think um throughout his period in in power. Putin's been in power now since, well, August 1999 was when he first became prime minister and president from March 2020, uh, sorry, uh, president from March 2000. So about 22 years as president. In this period, he's fluctuated. Sometimes he seemed to be uh, get on a little bit better with the West. Uh, sometimes he seems to be in favor of things like a, a market economy for Russia. But right through, I think, his his period in office, you could say that Putin has been very ruthless towards those he considers his enemies. And we see, for example, um, the deaths of journalists who were reported negatively about Russia's war in Chechnya, the death of the main opposition leader, Boris Nemtsov, in 2015, the poisoning of the current opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, um, a couple of years ago, he's now in prison and wars in Chechnya, Georgia, Ukraine now twice and uh, involvement in some of the worst atrocities carried out by the Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad. But I think right now the war in Ukraine has taken this considerably further than he's ever gone before. And in some ways, it's not typical of Putin because it, it seems too, um, too risky and to alienate and, and the rest of the world seems pretty horrified by what is happening.
1: So when you said that he's not quite there yet uh, uh, on uh, an equivalency basis with I mentioned Joseph Stalin and, and uh, Adolf Hitler, what's that line that he has to cross? To reach that level of of infamy. I mean, already the devastation in Ukraine and and the uh, the destruction being uh, aimed at civilian populations, that's pretty extensive, apparently. Uh, His own country, you know, today he uh, signed a, a decree that basically says if you're a reporter, you can't even use the word war because that's, in his view, or in the Russian government's view now, fake news, and you can go to prison for 15 years. Uh, They bombed Russian troops, uh, you know, shelled a nuclear reactor. That's never happened before. Uh, What line does he have to cross? I'm curious.
7: I mean, all those things are true, of course. And as the war escalates, the policies that he's employing get more and more outrageous. And um, I think in terms of Hitler... Uh, You know, first of all, um, megalomaniac aims, but also um, the campaign to eradicate Jews from the face of Europe, the campaign to eradicate gypsies from the face of Europe. This is sort of ethnic cleansing on a on a mass scale and fermenting World War in order to do that. Stalin, you could say, was a ruthless figure against his own people. Uh, more than, say, outsiders, the purges that he carried out in 1937-38 in particular, which hit all strata of society in the Soviet Union. His uh, famine that he brought about in Ukraine um, and the North Caucasus uh, in 32-33, especially when several million people died as a result. Uh, You could also talk about um, China in the Civil War period under Mao Zedong, when there were also similar uh, massive casualties. So far, the reason why I didn't compare it directly to those figures is that the the casualties, despite what's happened so far, the casualties are relatively low so far. Uh, of course, if it would if it blown up that nuclear power station, it would have been a different thing. And the fact that he's even targeting it is very worrisome, as is the fact that he's now uh, put his nuclear forces on heightened alert, which suggests that he may he may take an extreme step if he's under enough pressure to do so when you were
0: saying earlier that this this doesn't seem like him he's usually more practical people are wondering and i'm sure you've seen all the commentary if, if you know he's lost it but also all these questions about what's going on with him does this much power for this long do something to somebody and it's probably done
7: something to him yeah it could be the power um he's also getting increasingly angry um, uh, not get in his way. I mean, he, he thinks that Ukraine is part of Russia. He's always thought that, but he's never really acted on it before. And he seems to be incensed at the West and its, it's failure to step backward, uh, refuse NATO membership to Ukraine, remove NATO back to its 1997 borders. And, you know, there's no real reason, but you can think of why. He invaded Ukraine now because most of the things he's talking about have been in place for years and years. I mean, the NATO expansion to the Baltic states was 2004. So you took talking about 18 years ago. Putin was in power then, but did nothing about it. And it didn't seem like he was even interested in it. Um, I wonder also, you know, not only just losing it, but he's turning 70 this year. And he seems to be sort of at the end of his political life or close to the end of his political life and realizing it. And wanting to do some final thing that would that would resolve all the problems that he's been facing as far as he's concerned, uh, starting with Ukraine, uh, but possibly going further than that, once Ukraine is completely under his control. So we could go further. And then I think the comparison would be absolutely applicable.
1: You anticipated my question, uh, and I guess you've already answered it. You do think that there's a possibility that he will not stop in Ukraine. As many of the people in Ukraine, as you know, are now saying is probably going to be the case. At least they think so.
7: Yes. I mean, that would mean, of course, crossing the border because he would then be invading a country that belonged to NATO, uh, particularly if he's focusing on uh, ethnic Russians. but. He could, of course, say, invade Moldova or he could invade Armenia, which are not members of NATO and expand further. I mean, in Moldova, there's been a breakaway government in Transnistria for the past 30 years. That's pro-Russian, pro-Putin. Um, and really, the world has not paid any attention to it. Or in Georgia, where there's the two breakaway regions, Abhazia and South Ossetia, which are very pro-Russian, large Russian populations there. Uh, Georgia could be another target after Ukraine. Um, If he crosses the border into the Baltic states, uh, this is when the situation would get very serious, I think. And, And then there would be a response from from NATO. David Marples, Professor of Russian and East European History,
0: University of Alberta. Professor, thanks for talking to us. This is In Depth for the week. We'll be back on Monday.